0: From the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your
1: hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsey Reber. To the podcast.
2: Welcome back, Justin.
1: Ooh, it's the season. It is. It's our favorite time of the year. Once again, it's always just this big wait. Uh, Halloween is like Christmas for us. <laughs> and every, this is our fourth, fifth Halloween now. I think yeah, it is. Yeah. That's like blowing my mind right yeah. now. And every Halloween, we do only horror movies. Um, we, we occasionally throw in a horror movie during our Non Halloween months, but because uh, we are big, huge horror movie fans, sometimes I'm like, why, why, why aren't we doing a horror movie podcast? But yeah. we love <laughs> so many movies, and there's just so many, many movies to talk about. But what I love about it is it it makes me get more selective once it comes down to the actual month of October. And this was actually a pretty tough one. We try to go for like a theme in some sorts, mm-hmm. and we decided to go with a ghost theme for this uh, Halloween season.
2: We don't do too much haunting yeah, stuff it's, it's uh, true. Throughout, throughout the years. We really haven't.
1: And I noticed that The Ring was having its 20th anniversary. It's crazy to me that this movie is 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, watching it, it feels just so modern still. It doesn't yeah. feel like 20 years ago. I was kind of curious how I was going to feel about this movie because when it came out, I thought it was really, really scary and I hadn't seen it since then. And these last few watches, I think uh, I appreciate it more that there's more going on than just the scares. Uh, we'll get into that. Yeah, it's going to be a fun month. We're going to do The Ring and then the week of Halloween we'll be doing Poltergeist because it's celebrating its 40th anniversary, which is nuts. And two movies
2: that I haven't gotten tired of throughout all of the years, throughout 40 years of Poltergeist and revisiting The Ring. It's been a couple times here and there I've caught pieces of it and remembered, oh yeah, this thing's legitimately creepy but all of these rewatches going back and viewing it this time never once did I get tired of it I work long hours sometimes I fall asleep didn't fall asleep once through this and if anything every viewing made me appreciate the time before even though I know what's going to happen didn't get tired of it
1: I remember renting the ring when it came out on DVD my wife and I had a roommate, I came home and I was like, "Oh, I got the ring." I heard it's really scary, and so my roommate's like, "Oh, fine." So we had dinner, and I put it on your wife and my was wife with you. Yeah, and my wife, <laughs> within like that first opening scene, she's like, "I'm out." Of course and she, she was. She, you know, she's not really like a horror movie person. She'll but try it she'll though. Get, yeah, she gets yeah. into some stuff, and she loves Halloween, the original Carpenter yeah. Halloween. And uh, she's like, "Yeah, I'm out." So then, me if and my—it's too
2: creepy, though. She's you know, tapping no. out immediately. <laughs> and then,
1: so she left. And then it's just me and our roommate. After the opening, whatever five minutes, he's like, "Man, this movie's really scary." And I, you know, I was—it was just fun because it's like it'd been a while since I would seen something that actually had that effect, where someone just like, "Yeah, I don't want to do this. This is—it's like uh, getting off of a a roller coaster. Like I got to get off of this thing before they they take off." The movie really, uh, I think, held up to that, and I wanted to. Um, do a couple movies, I think Poltergeist, even though it is a little bit dated, there's some legit scares in that movie as well. So, um, you know, we'll be talking about the scare factor of this movie. We'll also be talking about um, that this is a remake. This was a time in horror movie history where the it's the dawn of the remakes. Hollywood started remaking horror foreign films. Hollywood started remaking uh, horror classics from the 70s and 80s and became like a big boom. It's still going on to this day except for now we're getting like sequels to those remakes yeah. of, and then we're getting prequels we're getting origin stories we're getting uh, legacy sequels it's it's getting pretty insane in, in this last 20 years of what's being rehashed but we won't we're not going to be doing any bashing on this episode
2: no but one thing about the ring that's going to be great to get into is not just the origin story but the urban legend kind of aspect of where this story of the ring kind of comes from and it might be I mean like maybe some of you out there I didn't know where this story came from I I of course knew that it was a pre-existing Japanese movie but um, I hadn't seen it I saw the ring before I saw that um, and I certainly didn't know the history behind it so we're going to get into that we're going to get into a little bit of production the casting this was a pretty important movie for the star Naomi Watts so we'll talk about the placement of this movie and her career and some other cast highlights throughout the film I want to talk a little bit about the special effects how you think it holds up the creepy factor you know like where where does it kind of hold up in in the lineage of horror movies the reception the sequels yeah
1: I did watch uh, i
2: You watched, both. you hadn't seen either one of them, I hadn't seen either one,
1: and it was, like, really under the gun. Like, I watched Rings, (laughs) 2017's Rings, uh, this afternoon. Okay, So I was really um, trying to, came in under the wire on making sure I watched the sequels. I
2: saw Ring 2 before, but I hadn't seen Rings.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I've got got some thoughts on those, fresh thoughts, because I just watched it, like, five hours ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, after our Ring talk, of course, we'll get into our picks of the week. We always keep our picks of the week- Um, in conjunction with the feature to relate it somehow to the feature Um, but when we're doing the Halloween uh, month we try to also make those horror movies as well I stuck with a ghost story Um, I chose 1408 the Stephen King adaptation one of a thousand Stephen King adaptations but one of the bad ones I think and this one also some pretty legit scares in it so and solidly creepy movie I love 1408 and what was your pick
2: I went with another haunting type of movie, one that I just discovered in the last three years, I think. Um, That's The Skeleton Key.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah.
2: I've watched this movie numerous times now since I finally was like, what's this Kate Hudson movie? She's in a horror movie? I want to watch this. I love it. I love it so much. Like The Ring, it has an ending that I can see it coming, and I'm like,
0: oh, God, this is
2: perfect, but it doesn't make me feel great.
1: I'm looking forward to you talking about The Skeleton Key. Yeah. Well, we'll round things out with our Murray moment, but before we get into our first terrifying clip from The Ring, (laughs) Lindsay, can you give us a brief uh, summary, your interpretation of what this movie is about? It's
2: such a bummer we can't give you a visual clip of just the video. Yeah. You know, we've watched this movie numerous times, and it's been seven days since. So maybe the curse still is there, but maybe it's like a longer period now. I need to take a picture of you right now to see if your face is distorted. Yeah.
1: Maybe it might help my face. I don't know.
2: Damn it. Tell us about the uh, ring laser. (laughs) When it's discovered four teens died on the same day, same time, but at different locations, curiosity is piqued, but no connection can be made. As she begins her investigation, Rachel, a newspaper reporter and aunt to one of the mysteriously dead teens, almost immediately hears a rumor about a videotape which, once watched, the viewer has seven days to live. Although it sounds like an urban legend and Rachel's leads are slim, she tracks down the tape, left behind where the teens initially viewed it together. And like any investigator would, Rachel reviews the tape filled with images strung together in a disturbingly nightmarish fashion, leaving her confused and unsettled. After watching it, she receives a phone call from a voice who just says, seven days. Fully believing she only has seven more days to live, Rachel's investigation is now not only to solve the mystery behind the previous deaths, but also to prevent her own while hoping to unveil the tape's origin and prevent anyone else from viewing this cursed videotape.
1: After hearing that summary, I'm just expecting one of our phones to ring in a real creepy fashion. Let's go to a clip. We'll come back. We'll talk about the ring. You can pick something. I don't, I care.
0: don't
1: care. Say hello. the whole Any idea how many electro rays are traveling through our head every second? I got a better one. Mm. Have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? What kind of tape? A tape? A regular tape? people run it. I don't know. You start to play it and it's like somebody's nightmare. Yeah. Then suddenly. This woman comes on. Smiling at you, right? Seeing you through the screen. And as soon as it's over, your phone rings. Someone knows you've watched it. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. And exactly seven days later. Who told you that? Somebody from Rivera. Who told you? What's your problem? The story, Katie. No, me and Josh. We saw it last weekend. I thought you were with your parents. Uh, I wanted to tell you. You were
2: with Josh all Some weekend? of his
1: friends got this this place up in the mountains. They were trying to record a football game. I, I guess the reception was so what bad. What are you talking about? Listen to me. When we played the tape, the game wasn't there. It, it was. What was it? It was something else.
0: <laughs> we thought it was some kind
1: of sick joke. And then the phone rang. It was a week ago. A week ago tonight. Uh, You're just trying to scare me. Now, in the spirit of Halloween, get a little bit into folklore and talking about urban legends a little bit because so many movies, I think, and scary stories are born out of these urban legends. Uh, I don't know how many... Horror movies I've seen where it's like based on true events, and then yeah. <laughs> you start, you know, seeing an interview with the filmmaker, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, there was this in my neighborhood. They talked about like there was this guy, and he like got killed in this house or whatever. And there's like an urban legend behind it. And the Ring, the original Ring, was born out of a old folklore tale, um urban legendy type story. And a lot of, especially with uh, Japanese folklore, a lot of this stuff dates back. Many, many years. I mean, there's also folklore with witches that date back many, many years. And the ring was, you know, got its roots from an actual folklore type urban legend type story.
2: Yeah, we're talking 16th century here. So the story of The Ring, of course, it wasn't called The Ring, but this idea was based upon a samurai and this servant girl named Okaiku. The samurai, as the story goes, and there are variations of this, was fascinated with this girl and wanted her as his mistress. She didn't feel the same. And one story goes is that he became enraged and obviously wasn't a fan of this. All of these urban legends always end up with the same kind of feeling of there is a victim and eventually they want revenge. Now, not everything, but pretty much a lot of these tales are kind of about revenge, and that's the whole spirit of the haunting behind them. At the same time that this is happening, this uh, royal family where this samurai and this servant girl uh, both inhabit, for some reason Okaiku is put in charge of protecting these coveted, valuable 10 golden plates. Now, what the samurai does, because He's butthurt because Okaiku doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Is he hides one of the plates and says, Oh, you must have lost it. Well, maybe you can find it if you agree to be with me. And rather than be with him, she would rather face death for losing this plate. And that's what happens. The plan doesn't work, and she refuses to be with him. And instead, I mean,. <laughs> I guess this is a a normal conclusion in 16th century Japan. Instead of being with this guy, she throws herself down a well of this castle and dies. As with so many urban legends, there are variations of this story. There's one version where Okaiku is haunting the samurai ever since, believing that she lost the plate, and then, of course, after she dies, knows that he hid the plate from her and can be overheard counting them over and over and over again. Um, Another one, and I love this one specifically because it was one that was actually in the ring, is that she's in this kind of white dress like a funeral dress with long dark stringy hair and crawling out of the well to visit the samurai every early morning to torment him. And there actually is a well named Okaiku's well. Now this one there is an actual setting for this in Japan, but then there are also other wells that claim to be part of this urban legend. I love how these stories just kind of keep varying and everybody takes their different stance on them. Yeah. Whether it is this guy throws her down the well or she throws herself down the well or there's another version where a jealous wife purposefully breaks one of these plates then blames okaiku and has her thrown down the well as punishment another one is okaiku overhears a murder plot and she voices this she narks somebody out and gets thrown down the well all of these end with poor okaiku Being thrown down a well and they all end in having revenge on the tormentor and involve her coming out of the well, counting, sobbing. This sort of thing that leaves this spirit that is forever haunting and not able to rest because they were wronged and this is their plight in the afterlife. So the story of the ring really was born out of something that allegedly did happen.
1: So essentially the beginning of the story starts like your typical Dateline episode where some guy like you know
2: for centuries women are still being thrown down wells and killed the haunting
1: you know at the end it's strange it's like it's so many of these urban legend tales it's like someone who's wronged they're stuck in this sort of afterlife and all they can do is like work out their vengeance on people
2: god if more hauntings happened with the amount of women that are killed in the worst ways maybe you know they'd stop yeah it'd be kind of cool
1: There's so many different variations of like urban legends. I feel like every town has its urban legends. I love to hear from our listeners, like, you know, message us your town's individual urban legend. I lived in Arkansas for uh, three or four years, a very rural, rural part of Arkansas, population eight, Poughkeepsie, Arkansas. Eight? Eight. Eight people. Eight people. people. Yeah. And uh, I lived at a crossroads, three of the roads were gravel. That's how out in the boonies it Mm -hmm. was. And I used to ride my bike and I'd have to ride through an old abandoned, I mean, I'm not making this up, an old abandoned rusted out cemetery that was clearly some like family plot stuff that no one is alive anymore in this family. And there's just like weeds growing over it. And there was a urban legend that my grandpa told me that other people in the community talked about and they would say at dusk of course there's always like these like set things of like when it happens but at dusk there was a there was a a family who died in a car accident and like their daughter who was like four somehow survived and they never found her and she's been like living out in the woods and they called her the quote-unquote wild woman and she has been living out in these woods for like 30 years and they said that you know occasionally you know they they're like she's naked she's just like covered in dirt dirtiness and of course everyone you know oh my cousins are you know like someone's always yeah. seen her but they said that you know when you hear her when she screams it sounds uh and there are panthers in the area and a panther if you've ever heard a panther scream it sounds like a woman screaming it's very very creepy like youtube panthers like screaming it's it'll freak you out. But of course, if anytime you hear that in the woods, you're like, oh my God, it's the wild woman. And, you know, they were like, oh, she's never killed anybody. You know, it's like, it was like kind of a harmless (laughs) thing to tell kids who are like 10 or 12. Like, um, mainly I think it was a a way to, you know, make sure you get back before it gets dark kind of thing. Like a, a way of like back, back in the old days when, Parents and grandparents would, like, scare you. They would use, like, fear tactics to, like, get you home before totally. dark. Like, oh, there's a killer out there. There was that. Um, I've lived in St. Louis most of my life, though. And when I was in high school, I went to high school here at uh, Brentwood. At least in the area that I lived in, there was what, what people in urban legend of, that people called Laughing Lake, which was a street called Laughing Lake that was off of um, Clayton Road right near the Galleria uh, Mall, if you're from sure. this area. And the story was is this guy, like, killed his whole family, and after he, like, massacred his family, he, like, painted all their images on the front of this, like, huge garage door that he had. That's and so, terrifying. you know, generally it would involve, like, you're with uh, three or four people in the car, and you get, like, really, really stoned at uh, St. Mary Magdalene's parking lot, and then you would, like, <laughs> drive, drive up this, like, you know, private residence. I mean, I feel bad for the people who like lived in this nice house It's <laughs> yeah. just like stone kids driving. You up, didn't care at that point, you know, in time. but, but you would drive up there and sure enough, there was this like really bizarre, like a green, it was almost like a look like a, like a green door. And it did have a, a family big huge faces painted on it it was probably just some like art installation that someone put up years ago but back then there wasn't like Google or anything you just took it on the wording yeah. because so many people had talked about the story and a lot of it is just like you know it's hyping yourself up you're like getting more scared so that you could you know drive up and it's dark you can see a face on it painted on the door it's yeah. just it's gonna be scary because of that and because there was so much of that in my youth I'm drawn to these movies that have some sort of like folklore legend you know whether it be like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even more modern movies. Even, uh, you know, we've talked about it before. We both like urban legend. You know, it's a little, it was caught in that 90s, like WB, hot teenager era. But it's still, I think, you know, playing on these urban legends that we've all heard, you know, but I, I think every town has its, I'm sure the town you grew up in, a small Missouri town, I'm certain there had to be at least one, if not two.
2: One story that carried from my hometown in southern Missouri to northern Missouri is the legend of the Momo Monster. If you're from Missouri, you've definitely I mean if you haven't
1: heard of the Momo Monster, I, I don't I don't know. I've never heard of it. Really? And Momo is in Missouri. Missouri Monster, okay.
2: yeah. Um and in thinking about it now, I wonder if that played into because I had an imaginary friend when I was a kid. He was called Mike the Monster. He didn't look like what the Momo monster was supposed to look like, which is basically Bigfoot. All of the stories that I would hear about the Momo monster, it was way more violent than what you would hear about Bigfoot. Like, you never really hear stories about Bigfoot attacking someone. It's more like he scares the crap out of somebody. He, she, whatever this creature is, scares the crap out of somebody in the woods. But the Momo monsters were way more violent in attacking people, at least the versions that I heard. And again, with any urban legend, these stories vary. Sometimes it's passive. Sometimes it's these footprints were found that only had three, you know, toe prints in it. It was obviously not something that that we've ever seen or known before. So the Momo Monster has been pretty much something I've always heard about throughout my entire life. Not necessarily the creepiest thing to me. It's more like I want to see it. But creepy and I also want to see it is a whole vibe of St. Louis that is very much centered around hauntings. I feel like this city is very haunted. I'm not going to go as far as to say it's New Orleans haunted, but I think that St. Louis is kind of a sister city in that way that I mean the city's littered with caves. The entire city's built on caves. There'll be random pockets of the city that just fall in and expose an entire cavernous region beneath the city, or something that was once there, tunnels that were built that were blocked off. Some aren't even blocked off. Some connect to former breweries. And then you have something like the Limp Brewery, the Limp Mansion, all of these things that do have tunnel access and have a legitimately creepy vibe. The band that I used to be in, we practiced in an annex of the Limp Brewery, which was a, gosh, f- four stories of practice spaces. There was not one time, I mean, I went there plenty of times by myself to play drums by myself, but it was creepy. And there have been people that have been creeped out or had stories of, you know, things kind of flying. I don't know. They could have just been drunk for all I know. But there's something to that, I feel, when it's not necessarily just a communal vibe, but when you when you feel something that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, there's got to be something there. I mean, hell, The Exorcist, that is based out of St. Louis.
1: Yeah, my mom worked at Alexian Brothers Hospital. Whenever, You're shitting me. What? Yeah, not during the time of the, okay. the exorcism, but okay. way later. But she did say that when she worked there, that the floor that the supposed exorcism happened... You notice
2: how we always, uh, and if you're from St. Louis, you're like, the alleged. Yeah, the alleged. (laughs) Well, you know, because it's a big, the original
1: story that they base Exorcists off of. Yes. It was the kid. He was in a hospital. It was a boy, and there wasn't a girl at home. Yeah. But she did say that it just became like a storage floor, and, you know, if people had to go get supplies, they would just kind of, like, rush in there and rush out, that it was kind of a creepy, you know, empty floor. And I think there is just an element of, like, history, you know, like, whether it be, like, terrible or like you know so many there's just so many tragedies that that memory of that like locks into your brain and I'm definitely one of those people where like if we're out in the middle of nowhere and then you're like oh man did you hear about what happened in this cave up here I don't want to know right right away (laughs) like you can get me into like tell me later (laughs) you can get me like stir crazy pretty quick you know because um I get all worked up. I think that that is uh, something that so many times is like incorporated into horror movies. And I think some movies do a really good job of like embracing that. And The Ring, I think, is a good movie that it gives us a story. It it helps that we have like investigative journalist who is, she has an interest in this and she's not a skeptic, you know, just like, I I saw something with my own eyes, this creepy stuff that's happening. And then, you know, her child starts getting creepy and, you know, and then this idea of like, you know, something stored on this tape that's like haunted this idea of like finding some tape that doesn't have any like writing on it. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to watch this and see what's going on. And then, you know, you see this like really weird, creepy looking like student film type movie and then a voice calls you and says you have seven days to live I don't feel like in this movie they ever actually say you're gonna die in seven days
2: no but it don't it's it's kind <laughs> of like
1: a presumption because there's a history of someone else died yeah. but they immediately start seeing weird stuff like it's not like uh, nothing happens for those seven days like you start seeing like premonitions and creepy things start to happen and but I do love that the ring takes that, but it has this side story of her, uh, the Naomi Watts character trying to figure out what's going on. Like what's the history behind this? What happened to these other kids that died? What's, how did this tape come into existence? Like who made the tape? Having that as, as a basis for a movie keeps the movie interesting. It's not just a, a recycle of scares of like, you know, a movie essentially where like, every 20 minutes another person who saw the tape is dying which it, i think it easily you could go that route with a movie like this and have it be more of like a final destination type thing versus this essentially like a haunted murder mystery yeah. and but keeping the scares very very calibrated and the tension very high
2: what i love about the ring is that it is taking an urban legend and it's dissecting it the idea of this haunted tape was a Japanese urban legend, more of a contemporary, obviously, than a 16th century story about a samurai and a servant girl. There was this urban legend about a haunted VHS tape. But if you're comparing something like The Ring and Urban Legend, Urban Legend is about the idea of urban legends. And I love that concept. It's a fun, great movie. But dissecting one urban legend and investigating it and like, pushing it to the limits, you're going beyond what anyone ever actually goes when researching an urban legend. If you can get the actual story on the truth behind a for real urban legend, it doesn't usually happen because maybe there is a kernel of truth somewhere. Maybe there are 28 kernels of truth that are all put together that we actually get to dissect and follow this journalist Uh, makes a lot of sense. And in some ways, makes a story that would otherwise seem unbelievable seem factual
1: you know when this came out in 2002 and when this came out I think there was like a I mean a tiny bit of backlash of it being a American version of a Japanese movie that got quite a bit of acclaim that came out maybe I think it was like four years prior and there was kind of a pop there of like that I was aware of not not I didn't see these movies but you know Just uh, I was living in Austin at the time and going to the indie video stores and, you know, people were talking about, oh, there's like a lot of great Japanese horror movies coming out and people would kind of bash the Ring remake. and It's funny
2: how Ring, the 98 Japanese one, had such a mystery behind it, too. It's like, oh, you've seen The Ring? Well, have you seen Ring? Yeah. It's even
1: even scarier, man. And it's it's funny because now like 20 years are removed. You know, in 2002 when it came out, there was like, you know, you could rent stuff, but like you had to be near like an independent video store that would have like a Japanese horror yeah. selection. We didn't have like a lot of access to Well, you could, you know, you can stream everything now. But back then, like, you know, if someone said, hey, man, did you hear about this crazy Japanese horror movie? It's like, yeah, I heard about it, but I don't know. I don't have access to it. I don't know where I can...
2: Which makes it even that, more of a mystery and, yeah. and scarier because you can't Yeah, watch
1: and, it. And so, like, you know, we get this mainstream version of a movie, but the Gore Verbinski remake was much more in tune with the original. I mean, they didn't change a lot of the story um, and they certainly kept a lot of the scary elements, even I think the look of Samara, um, very similar, even though she's not a Japanese girl. They kept like the dark hair and I mean, v- you know, very similar, like hiding the eyes Mm-hmm. And also, too, the fact that um, Naomi Watts wasn't like a well-known actor. I think if if it would have been like Julia Roberts or somebody that was in the Naomi Watts role, the movie may have been played more of like, oh, this is just like they're trying to make money or something like we're going to get a big star and just start ripping off all these foreign movies that no one's seen or heard. I'm sure there's a little bit of that, but I also think Gore Verbinski is like a director who wanted to make a solid Visual scary movie, and I think this is a very high end horror movie, and especially for 2002, where we're coming off of essentially like six years of like the slasher revival in the WB. I know I keep referencing that, and like it sounds like a negative way. I love all those like late 90s like WB actor, TV actor horror movies like Scream. I know what you did last summer, Urban Legend, Valentine. This was a different take on a horror movie. There was a little more intrigue. There was a little more mystery. Uh, You had Naomi Watts, who was like 30. You know, she wasn't like a teenager, or like a college student. She had a son, you know, so there was, you know, she was a parent. There was just a lot more for, I think, a broader audience to see. But at the same time, essentially saying like, we still want to make this like really terrifying movie. And a really terrifying movie that's also PG-13.
2: In fact, all of these... Japanese horror remakes were PG-13, starting with The Ring. The Ring kicked it all off. In 2002, we had that, followed by The Grudge, then there was Dark Water, Pulse, and The Eye. All of these movies, Japanese remakes, PG-13, all have female protagonists, and all respectfully scary, but also were palatable for a youthful audience that maybe gave you nightmares but wasn't going to haunt you and ruin the rest of your life sort of thing they weren't scarring
1: yeah you make a really good point it's like these were movies that are definitely scary but like it didn't seem like crazy for like younger kids to be watching i don't mean like five or six but yeah you could get scared but yeah you're not like emotionally scarred like watching a <laughs> you know a movie where someone's like getting decapitated or something <laughs> yeah. on screen you know yeah
2: yeah the image of a pale Girl with like this stringy black hair. I mean, both The Grudge and The Ring share that. They're images that do kind of haunt my dreams, but are not going to. They may make me run out of a basement faster, but it's not going to be something that's going to ruin me for the rest of my life. And we've already said that The Ring came from an urban legend. It also came from a book series written by Koji Suzuki. That started in 91 with Ring, followed by Spiral in 95, and Loop in 98. Now, there are plenty of variations from this original book series to... Ring, the Japanese 1998 movie, and the American Ring. I'm not going to go into all of that, but there are a fair amount of differences. The overall story structure is completely there. And it said though I actually haven't seen this movie, that the most accurate depiction of the original Ring 1991 book, was a Japanese TV movie called Ring, Kenzenban, that was in 1995, that's said to be the most accurate version. And maybe there are some of you out there, like myself, that didn't know that there was a movie that predated Hideo Nakata's 1998 Ring. And with every urban legend, this story has changed from the original 16th century urban legend to the book series, to this TV movie, to the Japanese ring. And now we're at 2002's Gore Verbinski's The Ring.
1: We've come a long way, baby.
2: I mean, who who knew that there was this much history behind The Ring?
1: I certainly didn't.
2: And I loved learning, too, that Gore Verbinski learned about this through... Um, The writer of War Games, Walter Parks, who was a known executive producer for quite some time, obviously, if you're doing War Games, but he sent Verbinski a VHS copy of Hadio Nakata's Ring. And upon watching the original Ring, Verbinski was just very taken with the story. He thought it was pulpy, intriguing, just had this captivating avant-garde quality to it. But in doing an American version, he wanted to remain faithful to the source material, but felt that there was a way to make it more palatable for an American audience.
1: And I think in, in doing that in terms of like not dumbing it down for Americans. Not at all. But more of a, the original, uh, like you said, a little it's a little more avant-garde in making a, a broad audience studio picture. American audiences are a lot of times want a more straightforward story. I don't, again, I don't mean like a dumber version, but like a version that's like less in the, fantasy and dream-like atmospheres. Certainly those movies are made in America and there's directors that do avant-garde movies, David Lynch, for example. But for a big studio picture, they're hoping to reach a broad audience. Keeping the story, still keeping the atmosphere and the scares.
2: That's exactly it, Justin. It's kind of lessening the psychic activity and the nightmares That aspect, but those things still exist in Verbinski's The Ring. They're just not as involved as they are in Nakata's version. And along with that, Nakata's version also has more intricate aspects to uh, the plot line that I don't want to say aren't necessary, but it's just kind of like more story that diverts from the legit creepiness of it. I I find the ring, much scarier than Nakata's version. I think that that has a lot to do with not only the straightforward aspects of the story, but also the visual style. We're not saying that we're streamlining it, that it's all about just jump scares. I don't think that this movie's about that. I think that the atmosphere still remains the same, but in taking the story and shaving off edges, but keeping in the nightmare aspects, keeping in that psychic ability that is put into uh, the main character's child, who's Justin's immensely creeped out by having those aspects still persisting throughout the film. It just kind of tightens it up. That's what I would say.
1: Speaking of the scares, I think that this movie does deliver the scares like the original ring. One specifically is the the actual tape that was made that they're viewing, which is... Are you scared by that? You know... I- I was a lot more scared by it the first time I saw this movie. Uh, you know, I've watched this movie about three times in the last two weeks. And mm-hmm. so with every viewing, it's not as scary. I mean, in the context of the movie, it's creepy because you've already been given this information that if you've watched this yeah. tape that you're going to, you know, bad stuff's going to happen. So then, of course, you...
2: You mean you're going to die? Yeah. A horrible yeah, death. <laughs> yeah, And so,
1: so if someone just like walked over and didn't say anything about it and they're just like hey man if you want to watch a short film and they like put it on you know i don't know that i would get too creeped out by it but if someone showed right me context, that and said
2: you want to watch this i'd be like what the f- are you well, showing I'd be like, me what right is now if sort of they're like hey
1: i made this you know over the weekend you know it's like what are happened? you okay That's but it what is you know but the movie itself is pretty it's it, it reminds me of like a early avant-garde movie you know from like the 60s or something the way that the tape that they're actually watching is and, you know, and then the static, the sounds that are going on, I feel like that is more creepy than sound aspect, a lot of the yeah. images. We've talked about this many times with like horror movies. The more you see something that's supposed to be scary, the less scary it becomes. Your imagination is going to run wild the less you see. And sometimes that can be more effective and scary. And I think that could have been the case with this watching the actual tape but you do need to see a lot of the tape because those clues come into play later in the movie they need to show you enough of it so that you're not completely lost when we when the clues start coming together and what the ring actually is which i think is if you haven't seen the ring i'm not going to spoil that <laughs> i think that is like one of the best image story payoffs in a long time in a horror movie and that's not even like wrapping up the movie it's just like oh that's, That's what, what the is. ring is, you know, yeah. and it's pretty effective. And I, I really love that when it comes, pun intended, full circle. I do think that there are like creepy elements with just that tape alone, but then you throw in really well-placed scenes that again aren't like you said jump scares kind of like intense moments like the scene with the horse I, I fast forwarded through it the second time around I watched it one last time yeah. I whenever not ever watch it's it again. it's the sound plays a big part in this and there's like a lot of terrifying sounds and like an animal screaming is uh quite terrifying and I don't know that a scene like that has been done too often like we're you know we've seen plenty of dogs die and cats die in horror movies but um never seen a horse go overboard yeah yeah it's pretty bad you know, this has been done a a ton of times now in movies, but like the distortion of, you know, you take your picture after you've seen this tape and now all your pictures are blurry and you know, it's like starting to affect technology and how like people view you and you know, you start feeling like you're going crazy. You're hearing things, you're seeing things, having the nightmares, get, you know, waking up and something's grabbing you in a dream. And then there's like bruises on your arm. A lot of these scenes, uh, Are short, but they're effective and they offer scares while also, again, keeping us on this journey of like this mystery, like giving us clues while Rachel's trying to figure out piecing this together, what the hell is going on.
2: You know, it just kind of dawned on me the examples you just gave, Justin. How many times when we did get photos back from a photo lab, did we have something that was distorted? Maybe not a face, but maybe there was an orb or something strange in the photo that you couldn't explain, or even having the nightmare where you wake up and you're so sure that what happened in your nightmare was real, having one of those waking dreams. Again, taking something that feels like it could be reality and putting it in this movie, it grounds it. It grounds this supernatural movie about ghosts and th- keeps throwing in these things that feel like, oh yeah, that happened to me, or that could happen to me. Again, combining this real-life horror and... And then this mystery aspect, which I think for me, on rewatching this movie, I had forgotten how much of a mystery this movie ends up being. It starts out pretty terrifying and remains pretty terrifying. And I don't know, maybe we won't get to the ending right now, but I want to get to the ending, how I think that this is one of the greatest endings, especially for horror movies at the time. The mystery aspect of this could lose an audience in some ways, but it remains still creepy, whether it's visually, whether it's through actions, simply of what's happening, sound, everything plays into the overall vibe of making this thing consistently creepy.
1: Throughout the movie, because Rachel's on the clock, you know, it's set up, that you have seven days, Yeah, there's this overall sense of dread, I feel also too like they took a page from David Fincher's seven, where they're, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, it's (laughs) like giving you this sort of countdown of like, this ever impending doom, like it's the next day, things are getting creepier, things are ramping up and you get this countdown. Mm -hmm. And so I think that makes, again, it's a a simple way to build tension, but having someone be on some sort of like clock ticking clock that they're going to die in seven days, just that in and of itself makes the movie tense. But then, like you said, this unraveling of the mystery, which I do think, again, I don't want to spoil the end too much here because I know this movie's 20 years old, but I do think that is a good payoff. I do think as far as like this kind of movie is concerned, where you have this like supernatural element, the explanation of like why this is happening isn't 100% coherent, but I think it's a pretty good payoff and it's a pretty satisfying explanation of what's been going on and why it's been going on.
2: Along with the ending and how it's kind of jarring, another smart move that Verbinski decided on when we have the legendary, I just call him the ring face, like what you look like after you've after seven days and your expiration date is up, the ring face that happens in so many horror movies, like you're you're ready you're ready for the scare, but you don't get it immediately, and it's almost like you're watching Sleepaway Camp 3 and you're like, oh man, I didn't even get to see the kill this sucks, but you never actually get to see it in that. This one he waits about 60 seconds and then shows you two seconds of the ring face and you're like oh my god I wasn't expecting that if anything you think that you got cheated for a second by not getting the payoff but you do get the payoff and you're not expecting it
1: I totally agree also a very effective use of making little bits of running water creepy
2: how does Which, that
1: happen? Which uh, I <laughs> think that there is something like a psychological element to that because, you know, anytime someone spills a glass or something, they're like, oh, my God, like the water's acid, like it's going to burn a hole in the floor. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's just water, you know, it'll be okay. But we always have this like gut reaction to like, oh, my God, water just spilled and it's running. Yeah. And I feel like the that movie utilizes that sort of instinctual fear uh, that we have of like th- that running water's bad you know it's like you see water running somewhere out of the wall in your house dripping it's like that's not good that's you know we've got a issue that now we need to resolve and so <laughs> effective use of that um, and also to all these like little creepy clues that they give throughout I think it, again it's like a good payoff and you know I love horror movies so much but I will say that it is a genre that has more times than none of other genres a pretty unsatisfying ending because it's usually like attacked on things so they can do a sequel or it's a you're witnessing so many creepy things and so many intense things that like the end of it it's like what can you do how, how can you end this and make it be as intense or satisfying of everything that you've witnessed and so a lot of times in horror movies like evil dead or something just end you know yeah. and that is a better ending than explaining something terrible at the end of like why this happened and this movie does have ability again to do that and still be scary and still not seem like ham-fisted with the and here's mm. what happened with the legend yeah. that's why she yeah. became the way she is I appreciate that about it and also I appreciate the fact that this was a change of pace for horror movies I mean we've done the dead kid ghost movie to death but At the time when this came out, this was like still pretty fresh. I mean, there was only a few. But now, of course, there's been like 100 dead kid movies. And it's like if I even see it in a trailer and I'm like (laughs) that, I just mark it off my list of like, yeah, I probably won't see that. Maybe if it comes to, you know, Netflix or something down the road.
2: I think one of the final things in the ending of this movie and just overall the all covering aspect about the creep factor of the ring is that in a sense, it's about our own mortality. What does your terrifying kid say? She doesn't sleep. You know, she never sleeps. This is Samara, the main child villain of this movie, that no matter what you do, this is something that can't be stopped. And in the original book series, this was presented as something like a virus. And when you think about it, I mean, it is. It is something that's just continually getting worse and infecting more people with anyone who views this tape. Also, in thinking about this too, this is how memories live on. People that die, they live on through videos, through photos. And it's the same kind of idea that these memories exist of people, but this is like a virus that's, you know, killing people. So it's about our own mortality and that there's nothing that we can do to stop it.
1: And then there's this moral dilemma and self-preservation theme that kicks in of like, if you, you you can't necessarily stop it, but you can divert it by Mm -hmm. passing this tape along to somebody. But then you have to live with the fact that they're going to suffer the fate that you had. (laughs) And that's not really on display too often. I mean, it's, it's more of like an afterthought in the movie um it's not like the main the sequels get into that more but
2: but that's how it ends
1: though yeah yeah that feeling and it's it is that uh it is that like we're safe but we're also going to cause someone else harm and so you're kind of forced with like again this like moral dilemma this decision of like do i die this awful death or do i live but then i have to also live with this guilt all these kind of like dark deep-rooted feelings like bubbling through this movie
2: and I think that's one of the greatest payoffs is to leave you still feeling creeped out, legitimately scared, and um, in the end, I, I don't know, I don't want to feel hopeful at the end of my horror movie. This does this does the job.
1: And also, too, the, if you're going to do a hook for a sequel, um, it's yeah. in a tasteful way. It's not in a kind of a goofy way yeah. that a lot of movies do yeah. where they're just like, the movie ended. It was a clean ending. It was a good ending. But now we're going to go to this <laughs> one scene where, like, an arm pops up and, you know, oh, yeah. he's not dead, yeah. you know, and then it just cuts the black. Um, they give you a, a pretty good hook, like, you know, again, ending with this moral dilemma. And then, okay, well, what's going to happen? Where do we go from here? Are we going to live with ourselves? And it and,
2: lulls you into thinking that's what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah. And then when you realize that that's not, I mean, I feel like the chairs ripped out from underneath yeah. me watching it.
1: But it it sets up the sequel really well. We'll stop here. we come back, we'll talk about that sequel. We'll talk about um, the sequels. But we'll also talk about the uh, cast, and I definitely want to talk about that creepy kid.
2: You love that creepy kid, don't you?
1: I do. I really do.
2: And again, not Samara the villain.
1: Yeah. She's not as memorable to me as (laughs) as, uh, the little creepy boy.
2: That kid needs some iron. He is too pale.
1: That's part of the, the, (laughs) the, the sickliness. That's what... Makes it so real.
2: But not a girl crawling out of a TV. A dead girl crawling out of a TV. Is because fine. I know
1: that that's not reality. A sickly kid who talks like an adult is <laughs> something that could actually happen. It would terrify me. I we'll, can't wait to talk about him. We'll do that. Let's go to another clip. We'll be back.
0: She wanted a child more than anything. Poor Anna. They tried hard for years, but sometimes it's just not meant to be. And one winter they went away. When they came back, it was with Samara. Adopted, they said. Never did say from where. Said the mother died of complications. But they had their baby, they had their horses, everything was fine. Till Anna started coming to see me. Said she was suffering visions, seeing things, horrible things. Like they'd been burned inside her. And it only happened around Samara. ...that the girl put them there. Were you Samara's doctor, too? Was there anything wrong with her? You mean medically? I mean whatever you mean. When Darby there was born... ...we knew something wasn't right with him. But... ...we loved him anyway. Takes work, you know. Some people have limits. So what happened to her? I referred them to Eola Psychiatric on the mainland. I assume she's still there. You don't know? How can you not know? We've been through... a lot of hard years out here. Mean winters. Small halls, no fish. And that was long before the horses. See, when you live on an island, you catch a cold. It's everybody's cold. No offense, ma'am, but what the hell does that mean? It means ever since that girl's been gone, things have been better.
1: Now, generally, horror movies, we've, we've covered quite a few on this podcast. Lower budget horror movies, the cast is relative unknowns. Then... You know, we have the horror movies that, you know, they'll do an ensemble cast and it's like TV actors, you know, fresh faces that people are familiar with, someone who's like hot at the moment, and movies like this, which is, this was a budgeted, like, almost $50 million, pretty big budget for a horror film.
2: Gore Verbinski had done, the biggest movies he'd done were Mouse Hunt and The Mexican, which yeah. The Mexican was a pretty yeah, that, big movie.
1: But I don't think he was like, you know, a director by name. No, you know, not like, at the time. And Naomi Watts got her break with Mahalan Drive, but that was a relatively small film that got her a lot of critical acclaim, but I don't think like a ton of people saw it at the time. I think it's great to have like a fresh face at the forefront of a a horror movie because if it's someone who's like a real big actor, sometimes the movies just aren't as scary to me. You know, like I think I said earlier at the top of the episode that if this would have been like Julia Roberts or something, it just wouldn't have the same effect. If you had like a big star in it, it just helps if I don't know who this person is, I can get like more detached from the persona of a star and more into this is character of like, going through this turmoil or whatever getting just makes it more scary and Naomi Watts this was a great choice for this uh I think when this came out uh, on top of I really enjoyed a uh, Mahalan Drive and so that was like when I first became aware of her and I think it was like maybe like 10 years before I realized that she was Australian
2: it was also 10 years after
1: I realized she was in
2: Tank Girl too
1: yeah I was listening to an interview with her recently and it was an Australian interview And they were kind of talking about how, you know, she kept trying and trying to break into Hollywood, like came to America and finally got her big break with Mulholland Drive. And then this became like a real breakout movie for her and like making that decision to should I do this like full on big budget kind of Hollywood horror movie? And it was a good decision because a lot of people knew who she was after this movie. And is wild, too, because in that interview, she's very strong Australian accent and does a really convincing American accent for pretty much every movie she's in, but really for The Ring. And she's great in this movie. I do think she toes a fine line between keeping the audience interested in. The mystery that's going on, her tracking this down and that seeming convincing, but also has this very uh, dynamic relationship with her son, which is like unsettling. You know, he calls her by her real name, Rachel, instead of calling her mom. But they have this like very, it almost seems like a cold, um, like an old couple or something that have been around forever. He doesn't you seem, seem like so friends, much like friends
2: more yeah. than son and mother. And
1: then her relationship with her ex boyfriend who she shares the child with. They have also like this dynamic of her feeling kind of connected to him, but then also like a little bit guarded, not wanting to get too close to him again. This movie doesn't work in this love interest type situation too much. I like that about it. It just keeps on with the scares. It stays focused on her trying to solve this mystery. And a lot of the movies on her shoulders really uh, does a great job of taking us through the motions of figuring out what's going on. And then also different than the scream queen type persona that is usually when you have the female, strong female protagonist. She's not screaming all the time. You know, she's like trying to problem solve. And I do think that there's a pretty nice arc here because she starts off detached from maybe her like family and personal life you know, because she's all about work. And then after this journey, like, comes to appreciate, like, her son more and her family more, it's kind of an exhausting journey that she goes through in the seven days. And so, I don't know, I feel like um, the movie does a good job. We kind of get to know her through the movie. It's not one of those films where they just, like, lay it out for you who this character is in the first five minutes.
2: It is much more of an emotional journey than what you would expect for a horror movie, Rachel is a flawed person, pretty normal, outgoing, but very strong and confident person. We get that from minute one that we're introduced to her. She's not afraid to take the death of her niece and investigate it. I mean, how do you kind of detach yourself from those feelings and then investigate this odd rumor that you hear, and then find an immediate connection between the time that our niece died and then these three other kids died, and she finds out that they were all at a cabin together. I mean, just one by one, we follow her journey, and at the same time, we're following this path and Rachel's learning about herself from the beginning of the movie to the end. She starts off at one place in the beginning and then by the end is completely different. Her relationship with her child is different and they've gone through a whole journey. And like you said, with the ex-boyfriend, it is extremely uncommon that we don't have two estranged lovers not get back together. It's hinted at a tiny bit But that hint is quickly ripped away from us, just like so many things in the ending of this. But the plausibility of is this movie actually possible is completely erased with Naomi Watts' performance. I think she said that this was the last movie that she actually auditioned for. And that was with Gore Verbinski. And he had seen an early screening, I think, of Mulholland Drive and got in contact with her. And I think she did one on-camera audition and then did a couple read-throughs. But pretty much he sought her out for this role. And when you think about her performance in The Ring and that Mulholland Drive was two years earlier, the arc that her character goes through in Mulholland Drive is almost like I'm. it is two different people but how she is one person completely different and who she is in the second half of the film it's like yeah I want someone who can go from one extreme to another and be able to put that into a centered grounded person which is what Rachel is in this movie it's it's also nice to have a solid female lead character who is an adult and who's a mom. We don't really have that very often who's a single mom. I do kind of question a little bit like where she's leaving Aiden, her son, a couple times. Like who is Aiden staying with? I know he has that babysitter, but like how often is she there? But that aside, you know, she does find out that she has seven days to live. So you kind of push that by the wayside, especially after uh, she does find Aiden, her son, has also watched the tape. So,
1: yeah, you got to make some concessions there.
2: Yeah, you you got you got a time crunch.
1: As good as she is in this. Really, like, she kind of makes The Ring too watchable. Other than the remake of King Kong, really didn't stick with the genre. Did dramatic works, which she's uh, one of those actors where I'm like, oh, it's Naomi Watts' is a new movie out because she's pretty low-key and branches out into more indie films. And But I've always liked her anytime I've seen her. It would be nice to see her in another horror movie. I think that, you know, she adds a lot to, you know, brings a lot to the genre.
2: I love that she did The Ring because she totally thought about not doing it. When you do something like a David Lynch movie like Mulholland Drive and you're getting all this critical acclaim for it to do a big Hollywood movie and to be at this point in your career to even question that, it's kind of interesting from her career standpoint of even saying, oh, should I do this or not? I mean, why wouldn't you? It was really at the push of her agent and I think even David Lynch was like, why wouldn't you do this? You should.
1: So getting into the subject that I've been wanting to talk about and you've been really wanting me to talk about is... David Dorfman? David Dorfman as uh, Aiden, the son of Naomi Watts' character.
2: I'm going to get you a framed picture of him sometime. You know,
1: kid actors can kind of ruin a movie. It sounds terrible. But generally, if the movie is like resting on their shoulders too. There's some great kid actors out there and I've seen some great young performances. But usually when it's like the creepy kid movies they uh it loses its luster pretty quickly i like that this is a subplot creepy kid movie that we Mm -hmm. have this kid who starts acting strange and he talks monotone but he doesn't start like killing people does he
2: start acting strange or is he just strange the whole time therefore it is the the i
1: agree i agree they kind of kick him off as like he seems like he's like a 65 year old man trapped in like an eight year old's body
2: well it's like he's this low-key psychic that we don't really realize yeah. what's going on you just think oh man he's really in tune with his mom no he's in tune with something else
1: but right away he sticks out in a good way to me like oh well this is an interesting yeah
2: way to play this
1: character <laughs> you know he doesn't seem like hey mom can you make me some cinnamon toast crunch you know he's just like hi rachel
2: He's already, yeah. like, getting yeah. dressed and stuff, and mom's like, where's my dress? Yeah, and
1: he's, like, helping her <laughs> find her clothes. It's, yeah. It's very uh, – the the relationship immediately is, like, kind of, like, unsettling, and it kind of made me perk up because I had I kind of forgotten about that their relationship. Um, I just kind of had remembered it being a creepy movie, and then after about, like, 20 minutes, I was like, oh, yeah, this kid, I, I remember him, him being, like, a standout, kind of, like, pretty creepy – And he really wasn't in too many other movies or he did do after the first ring, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake that they did, the big budget one that came out in 2003, but wasn't in too many other movies. And then uh, I looked him up and to see if he had done anything recently and he hadn't, he's actually a lawyer now, which is kind of wild. And maybe he just, you know, was one of those kid actors. It's like, I did that and I'm done with it. I would have loved to seen him on like a full on creepy killer kid movie. Like, let's do one of those.
2: Imagine having him as your lawyer like there'd be no way that you could lie to him. He'd be looking at you and you you would just think there's you can see right through me.
1: Yeah. Probably good at using scare tactics to win cases.
2: <laughs> through just like staring at someone yeah. intensely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I enjoy his performance. It's it's to me it's one of the uh things that I like most about The Ring is his portrayal of young Aiden.
2: Well, you've thrown around the scary kid phrase one thing that stands out to me about him is that while he is a child he doesn't feel like it to me he feels like an adult so the scary kid aspect is legit he is a kid but he is such an equal to rachel and a very important part in figuring out this entire story and for me probably out of all the scary moments uh in this movie he has the record scratch moment for me
1: yeah really all fresh faces in this movie. The Rachel's uh, ex-boyfriend, uh, Martin Henderson, who plays Noah, is another face that was unfamiliar to me. But he does a really fine job. He doesn't have a a very big role, but I think he is the first person that kind of brings us into the, uh, y- you know, helping to figure out what's the deal with this tape and, like, you know, believes Rachel but kind of questions at the same time and but does help her figure out, you know, and he thankfully knows a lot about, videotape dubbing and all that kind of stuff. So that worked out really good for her. That, yeah. You know, he can uh, help solve this riddle.
2: He's pretty, but not too pretty. Yeah. He's not a scumbag, but yet we're led to believe that maybe he has a little bit of growing up to do, which, like Rachel, he starts out at one point in the beginning of the movie and before his untimely demise also reaches um, a level of maturity that he wasn't at at the beginning. And actually, I hadn't realized until my mom pointed this out to me that my mom and I are currently watching a show that he's in that's kind of lovely. It's called Virgin River. I Yeah, lo- yeah I kind of like that show. All right.
1: Yeah. So another actor in this movie who I think really does the most in the small amount of screen time that they have is Brian Cox, who his scene is, I think, among the most creepy and intense, uh, playing the ill-fated father of Samara, who gets into an altercation with Naomi Watches Rachel and then eventually commits suicide in the bathtub. I'm yeah.
2: not expecting that every time it happens. Uh,
1: and he really does go for it. I mean, he's like ramped up to like 11 in the scene, just going for like the madman type screaming style of presenting this character. Really effective, really effective. And he always, I think, play is good at playing like these sort of like unhinged characters.
2: Mm-hmm. Another thing too is that for a scene that is building up to him killing himself it's not that he's reached this point of depression and it's and it's that type of thing it's that he is that scared of what Samara what this ghost what his former adopted daughter's uh, ghost is her haunting is doing and that to me I mean it's the whole thing of why this VHS tape is terrifying. What is so terrifying about this tape that it is literally scaring people to death? He's that fearful of it that he would just rather go, I'm going to kill myself, rather than deal with the horror that's coming for me.
1: And and, in just a very tiny amount of time on screen to show someone who's just been living in total agony and misery, uh, you know, who just, this whole town where after post um, this island town post Samara's death, you know, a lot of people have been just living in a glum life, you know, like a lot of terrible things have been going on.
2: Well, that all got better once she yeah. wasn't around anymore. And I think it's uh, a doctor that Rachel talks to from the town that says, oh, yeah, I I was her doctor. I'll say this. Things got a lot better yeah. once she wasn't around anymore. It's like, geez, little
1: Please, what is this, kid? So don't go stirring stuff up.
2: <laughs> Leave her be. Let's let her stay down in that well. That little girl in the well, by the way, is played by DeVay Chase, who I didn't think about this until after the fact that that's Donnie Darko's little sister. Um, She's much more innocent and in Donnie Darko than she yeah. is in this movie, but she does a great job. I mean, she's the creepy kid to me. Yeah. You're, you're still stuck on poor David Dorfman. I can't help it. But I think DeVay Chase does um, a wonderful job uh, and creepy job as Samara and even as the freakish monster version um, of Samara. A lot of good on.
1: movements, you know, body body movements, the crawling and the lurching forward.
2: Yeah, she would haunt my dreams. Yeah. yeah. And just to round out some familiar faces you might recognize, right at the beginning of the film, playing Rachel's niece, who is the first shocking ring face that we see is Amber Tamblyn. Totally going to scare the pants off of me right in the beginning of this movie. Another familiar face whose part is really only memorable because of how well-known he is today, and that is Adam Brody. Probably one of the last times that he played male teen number one.
1: My first rewatch of this, <laughs> I forgot that he was in this. And yeah. I was like, Oh, <laughs> almost like distracting. Oh,
2: what's up, Adam Brody? Adam Brody?
1: You're in this for a second. Yeah. Very effective opener. You know, oh my gosh. Good yeah. getting a uh, really good teen actors to make that opening like believable and scary.
2: And how many times has that opening been parodied? Yeah too. What do they say about a parody? I mean, either it's gonna be something that's terrible or it's gonna be something that's so memorable and yeah. I wouldn't say, you know, beloved really, but very memorable and effective. This opening, Amber Tamblin, you terrified me.
1: Well, the ring opened October 2002, 20 years ago, a way bigger uh, box office hit than I think the studio or anybody would imagine. Definitely. Um, Grossed nearly $250 million and for the longest time was the highest grossing horror remake of uh, any other movie until um, the recent It movie came out, the remake of that naturally you're gonna do a sequel when anything does this well because it wasn't just a big hit money wise but went into the cultural conscience like you said, you know, it was parodied several times, uh with the scary movies, you know, they parodied the ring. You would see um images, you know, that, that just her coming out of the television became like a cultural thing. Like Totally.
2: Even the marketing for the VHS yeah, tape. Yeah, it's, it's a clear case. like the, the cover is the cover of the movie, but then the back of it's clear. They really knew how to creep out the audience.
1: Yeah, really great marketing for this movie. And this one, um, like you mentioned earlier, uh, having a PG-13 rating, I think, helped it a lot because it was a movie that uh, younger audiences could go see, so you got more people going into the theaters. I, I think they're the ones that carried this movie on when this movie came out on video and people were watching it, you know, at sleepovers and Naturally, you're going to do a sequel anytime anything is that big. A sequel was made uh, two years later, The Ring 2 came out. The first Ring, a lot of critics liked it, but The Ring 2 um, kind of got bashed by critics. It was nowhere near as successful as the first one. I had never watched it until we decided to do this movie for the episode, and so I watched The Ring 2 last week, and I can kind of see why. There was a lack of interest in this one because the first one just it has all the elements. It has all the mystery. It has all the intrigue. Part two, it doesn't necessarily feel like a total rehash of the first one, but the continuation of their story kind of like stops dead in its tracks and it becomes like another movie, like a a movie where Aiden is like now Samara is trying to take over his body. We're not really given any too much more information about Samara and it's more about Aiden's transformation, it, start, it felt like they were like, we're going to do this continuation, but I wanted more of the, who did they give the tape to, what's going on with that, uh, more focus on the tape and that kind of aspect of the movie, less on you know Samara just trying to take over her son's body and become her you know new child, have a new mother.
2: What's wild, though, about this sequel is that this American sequel... Was directed by Hadigo Nakata, who did the original 1998 Ring and also the Japanese sequel to that movie.
1: Such a bizarre move for a director, but yeah. the only thing I can imagine is, uh, you know, thinking like, "Hey, I started this thing; I may as well cash in." The idea that like the second one could be even more successful than the first one, so why sure. not jump on board and, and you know maybe make it better? I, it, it's wild though, because it's you would think that having the original director on board, it would have a more distinct style, but it felt like he was, it was kind of wild. It almost felt like he was trying to stay with the, the, the continuum yeah. that Gore Verbinski like started. Gore Verbinski, uh, didn't really come back to horror. I mean, really laid the groundwork here and then left and ended up making a ton of money doing, uh, all the pirates of the Caribbean movies. I think he directed like three of them and Those things are like one of the highest grossing Disney franchises of all time.
2: And maybe he picked a good time to jump ship for the Ring sequel because I'm sure that this has kind of played up a little bit. But I did find a little bit of research about how the set was plagued with a few problems. Probably the biggest and most alarming for a movie that has a lot to do with water. Uh, As soon as production began, one of the production offices was flooded like caused the carpeting to be ripped up, like everything was kind of destroyed in there. And there was another incident on the Universal lot where a six-foot buck came out of nowhere and almost hit someone on the crew, too. That just kind of seems wild, considering, too, in this Ring sequel that there is a yeah, section like that a has to do... Yeah, type situation. Yeah, so it's, I mean... I don't think anybody was making it up. I don't know why they would. Yeah. Um, Seems like a very provable story if one were involved. So, Nakata did have uh, um, someone come in to purify the shoot, which is something that's common in Japanese culture, but you know, can't hurt when you're having some creepy stuff happen on the set of your horror movie.
1: Yeah, I didn't hate the sequel, but it was just, it felt really uneventful to me. Came and went in my mind and didn't really get me excited to watch Rings, the 2017 uh, extension of the franchise.
2: You know, we forgot to say something, though, about The Ring 2, in that it did the same thing with bringing Brian Cox in. In the first one, it brought two bigger name people that you're not really expecting with Sissy Spacek and Elizabeth Perkins. It just kind of came out of nowhere.
1: Getting a prestigious actor to do like a really Mm -hmm. small role. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that did stick out to me in Ring 2. I was like, oh, Sissy Spacek.
2: Who really brings it in the few minutes that she does have.
1: Again, I didn't hate The Ring 2. It didn't necessarily get me excited to continue on and watch Rings, the 2017 sort of continuation of this franchise. Uh, which is why I put it off to the very last minute, and mm. you
2: know, what do you think of it?
1: I was surprised; I enjoyed it more than the ring two, uh, mainly because I, I thought that it continued on with this idea of like what people are going to do with the transferring of the tapes, transferring this curse onto someone else. More involved in that storyline than continuing on with the Rachel character and the Aiden character. I'm glad they didn't bring them back for this movie. I think that would have just been kind of a, a lame storyline. I, I like that it. it jumped to like a whole new set of people. Also, continues on the prestige actor of sorts, of Vincent D'Onofrio, You're really going for it, you know, doing some like amped up character like Brian Cox and Sissy Spacek did in the first two. The lead role with uh, Johnny Galecki. Um, from Big Bang Theory you don't really see him in too many feature films you know I'm kind of just used to seeing him on television so I guess I like, missed the fact that he was in that like when it started up it was all people that I didn't recognize and then you know he They're comes like, oh, on the screen oh what's up yeah. David from Roseanne yeah, what's hey. going on you're shopping for VCRs at a <laughs> thrift store
2: I also did not mind this third sequel. I thought that, yeah, there were times um, where I could kind of see what was going to happen, but for some reason it didn't bother me. It had enough of a little bit of a mystery that I could navigate along with it better, probably because I was conditioned from the original ring to maybe know where we're veering off into. But it did go into new territory, which was nice and unexpected, considering that while I liked... The Ring 2, it played upon the possession aspect, which is totally fine and, and did follow you know the source material in, in some respect. But this new venture, um, I got to say, the payoff, the ending is certainly something that left me feeling like, oh, no, I don't know how I'm going to come back. I don't know how you come back from this one. Right. I really have no idea. And then it just ends. Uh, which is another great way to end a movie. And I remember thinking that when it ended, was like, you know, it's not the ending of the first Ring, but I'm still going, that sucks, but that was a really good ending.
1: And Rings was not a success. I think it was mm-hmm. kind of like critics didn't like it, audiences didn't like it, didn't make very much money. So I'm certainly not clamoring for another addition to the Ring it, franchise. It but- like... It
2: should it should end. Yeah, it yeah. Should, I think we just need to give up and just say, Samara, look, you effing hate everybody. You get it. I get it. You know, we're all doomed. Okay, yeah. we're all doomed. Eventually, we're all gonna watch the Eventually, video. though, eventually
1: though, someone's gonna make the script of Samara before the prequel, when she's like younger than she is in the ring. I don't want to see that. It's gonna sick happen movie, eventually. Man. You know.
2: It'll happen eventually. I I, I mean, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. But, I mean, hell, maybe kind of. If it it goes back to the original book and all that, the original source material, that's some twisted stuff. If you guys want to go back and... and (laughs) Yeah, read that book. The level of twistedness and things that happen, I'm glad that it's left out yeah. of the ring, but it certainly goes into territory I was not expecting. Yeah.
1: And about every five years, they put out like a, a killer kid movie. Yeah. And so like once that time period happens, we're like, hey, we, it's about time we can put another one of these out. Maybe yeah. they'll open up the books and say, well, we already have this.
2: We got Samara you know, here. We got Samara. We can do her. She's waiting in the wings. Before
1: she was thrown in a well.
2: Yeah. She's kind of the ultimate evil kid. Yeah. She's right up there with the Omens Damien, really.
1: Not a lot of people like it. I watched it recently, been watching a lot of, uh, revisiting a lot of like thriller type horror movies. And uh, speaking of Killer Kids, watched The Good Son with uh, Macaulay Culkin and Elijah Wood. And wow, that movie's like way more hardcore than I remembered (laughs) it. Yeah. It It is like pretty downtrodden and like. I sister. mean, it is it is uh, it is a menacing, <laughs> mean spirited movie, but I don't dislike it at all. I, yeah, I was actually pretty into it. So that's a good you one. Know, it's uh, my uh, October recommendation, but not my only recommendation. My uh, big time recommendation is my pick of the week, and another. And 1408. That's fourteen oh eight. That's fourteen oh eight. Another terrifying movie, which I'm going to get to. I'm going to talk about. But Lindsay, before I do that, can you tell me? a little bit about
2: The Skeleton Key. Yes. Yes, I can. It's another horror movie starring a blonde woman. Okay, I didn't solely choose The Skeleton Key based on that. Maybe a little bit. But probably more so that it was also written by Aaron Kruger, who wrote the screenplay for The Ring. Having only watched this movie for the first time maybe a year or two ago, I still remember the feeling when the credits rolled. Something along the lines of, okay, that was a crafty and fun horror light movie, and even though it didn't have this happy ending, it still left me smirking because the twist is so juicy and delightful, I can't be mad at it. But don't watch this movie for the ending. The skeleton key is worth the entire ride. Our protagonist is Caroline, a hospice nurse looking for a change of pace, and then finds herself taking on a live-in nursing role with Ben, played by John Hurt, a paralyzed stroke patient seemingly towards the end of his life. Ben lives on his Louisiana plantation with his wife, Mrs. Devereaux, played by Jenna Rollins, who is extremely protective of her invalid husband. So much so that we quickly question her motivations. But being that Ben is paralyzed and unable to speak, Caroline is left to read what little body movements she can for her patient. During one freak evening of maybe when Ben didn't get all of his remedies, as Mrs. Devereaux calls them, Caroline finds Ben dragging himself out of his bedridden room into the roof of the house, looking to escape. Thankfully, Kruger writes Caroline is no dummy. She knows something ain't right, and she's inquisitive enough to, one, investigate for herself, two, be unafraid to ask direct questions, but also, three, be able to read questionable people. For as mystery-driven as this movie is, The Skeleton Key isn't insulting to the audience. If anything, it pushes you further and faster than a lot of supernatural movies of its kind. It uses Louisiana's legendary history of ghosts, voodoo, and sweaty old New Orleans-style jazz as the backdrop. And maybe this could seem trite to someone from that area, but to me, living in what I consider to be like a little sister city of New Orleans, it provides nothing but a much-needed atmosphere in order to create a world wherein we buy into the connections to the past and the supernatural occurrences we come to understand. I might sound a little naive here, but I never knew about the difference between hoodoo and voodoo until this movie, and now I do, and that was super enlightening. Always a great and intelligent angle for a film to anchor itself in a well-established, highly researchable reality for additional believability, especially when you're potentially dealing with ghosts and something intangible. The Skeleton Key gives us plenty of clues, but never gives it all away. It's intentional and it's predictable leading elements of the story, yet nothing's spoiled. It makes the red flags presented even more hair-raising, and also question what you thought you already predicted. Is Mrs. Devereaux poisoning her husband for some bizarre Munchausen syndrome situation, or is it a red herring to lead us away from the real truth? The story is surprisingly evolved for what you might expect when strapping in for a supernatural horror-light mystery. I forget if I've admitted this before when we did an episode on Almost Famous, but Kate Hudson is always captivating to me. It's her consistency in every one of her performances, from her most serious to the goofiest. But it's also her mom. I mean, I grew up with Goldie Hahn, and so there's a sense of pre-embedded familiarity whenever I see Hudson. But in some way, it makes me really proud to see where Hudson has created her own brand, very much away and beyond her mom, and evolved into such a dynamic performer. She's not really in a lot of movies like The Skeleton Key, so if you're a fan of her work and haven't seen this, I bet you'd love it. But speaking of actors who've been around for a while, Jenna Rollins reaches a level of unexpected deviousness that isn't fully realized until the film's finale. It's when all of her seemingly insignificant side-eyes, short quips, her covert, judgmental attitude adjustments desired from Hudson's character, it all makes sense when you realize the gravity of her performance. In only a way that Rollins can display, she brings the utmost depth to a role which kind of doesn't even deserve her grace. And Peter Sarsgaard, who's always been underrated in my opinion, gives a sneaky, smarmy performance that, like Rollins, you don't totally see coming until you're hit smack dab in the face with it. And even then, his fierce dedication to his supporting role becomes supremely important to make the ending of this movie feasible. John Hurt isn't really given uh, much to work with considering he's paralyzed and unable to speak. However, like Justin and I have said numerous times in this podcast, don't underestimate actors who can create entire performances with their eyes. Uh, See examples of every single time we've talked about Arnold Schwarzenegger or Renona Ryder. John Hurt's eyes and grimaces are really the only things he has to work with. And you see the multi-tiered fear in his eyes. And like Caroline, we're desperately trying to understand him. Another supporting character, Caroline's best friend Jill, played by Joy Bryant. While she's only in a few scenes, she serves as Caroline's bounce board and confidant, and is really the last hope we have at the film's end. The strength of her performance also gives legitimacy to the supernatural appeal of the movie, and to the emotional connection that we have towards Caroline. We've got flashbacks to some awful times in history which lay way to what's happening in the present. Plenty of creaks in the night, a few exciting and necessary to the plot jump scares, and a mystery so tense that when the climax finally winds down, the slick transition into a silent nightmare leaves me delighted and disturbed. Justin, how do you feel about this movie?
1: It's been a while since I've seen it. I kind of forgot uh, until you start talking about here what a cast this movie has. It has a really, like, prestigious cast for a <laughs> yeah. uh, supernatural type movie
2: yeah folks that you don't normally find in a horror-ish
1: movie and I do it's nice to see Kate Hudson in something that's not so much on the rom-com train mm-hmm. you know she I like it when she dips into some other genres every now and then
2: yeah me too all right Justin I would love to hear you talk about 1408 I think this is a very entertaining film
1: I totally agree. I decided to go with 1408 because um, it had the uh, sort of folklore behind it, you know, of something impending doom, of, of something that's happened, has happened before other, it keeps happening to other people, as well as the uh, supernatural aspect. Also, what better uh, writer to uh, bring us into the October season than Stephen King. Uh, this movie was based off of a short story. This movie is uh, really elegant in the way that it's designed I love the um, lead-in with this movie. Much like a lot of Stephen King stories, it's a writer portrayed by John Cusack. He kind of writes books that are sort of like Yelp reviews, where he's evaluating haunted places, uh, a lot of hotels. You know, people are just giving him suggestions like, oh, you got to check out this hotel. It's supposed to be really haunted. Well, eventually, um, he lands his way into New York at the Dolphin Hotel, There's a particular room in this hotel, 1408, that's supposedly like one of the most haunted places in the United States, if not the world. And so, you know, he gets there and his his big thing is, is he's a skeptic, you know, mainly when he writes these books, it's to debunk the fact that paranormal things are happening um, so he, you know, has all his little gadgets with him and he's recording, you know, he takes notes, stays the night at a place and then usually writes his review and his books of, well, nothing happened here. The hotel in the room was really nice, but, you know, I didn't see any ghosts or anything. When he gets to the hotel, they immediately um, don't want him to check into the room 1408. And the manager hotel, portrayed by Samuel Jackson, who, you know, I love, does a really great convincing job of making the audience um, start believing that something's wrong with this room. And the more that Samuel Jackson tells John Cusack that he doesn't want him to stay in that room and that it's dangerous, uh, it makes John Cusack want to stay in it even more. And it makes it even more tantalizing for the audience to wonder, oh, wow, so this is a really scary room. We start getting clued in on the history of it that, you know, other people have tried to stay there they've not made it the night that so many people have died or committed suicide in this room. Finally, John Cusack uh, talks to his editor and basically says, like, yeah, it's against the law for you not to let me uh, stay in this hotel room. You know, if I want to stay here, you know, I can sue you and write a bad review. So as much as uh, Samuel Jackson tries to convince otherwise, um, he does allow John Cusack to stay in the room. Now, the whole build-up to this, we're about 20 minutes or so into the movie, and it's a really great build-up. The first act of this movie, I think, is totally fantastic. When John Cusack gets into the room, that's when his skepticism really kicks in. You know, he's kind of checking it out, takes some notes in his audio recorder, and it's like, yeah, so far, nothing creepy's happened. But eventually, creepy things do start happening. You're going to definitely feel some throwbacks to The Shining here and other Stephen King stories. So then for the next act of the movie, we're sort of in it deep with John Cusack uh, in this room with creepy things happening and with him starting to really start to believe that he shouldn't have taken on this assignment and stayed in 1408. And the third act of this movie really kind of goes out there. It's sort of depending on what kind of movies you like, whether you're going to be on board with it or not. I really did like it. I think this movie has a great conclusion. I think it wraps things up really nicely, especially when a movies like these generally spiral out of control in the third act and things don't really come together. I really liked... Um, what happens with the character in this movie and it really does offer some scares. I was legitimately kind of creeped out. I really went for this movie because The Ring legitimately creeped me out and this movie, I think, does have some uh, scares. But I also think that this is a good movie to watch if you're someone that doesn't like the blood and gore, uh, much like how we're recommending The Ring. Uh, this is a really good one for a scary movie to watch during the Halloween season if you're not into, like, the Friday thirteenth and the Texas Chainsaw Massacres. This one... Uh, is really tense, has a really great atmosphere. And also another thing with this movie that I think makes it a little bit different than a lot of horror movies is that the score isn't your traditional on-the-nose horror movie score. It has more of a score that you would find in like a tense drama. Uh, really, really fine performance by John Cusack. I wish he would do uh, more of these type of movies. And um, really good pairing with Samuel Jackson. Really good script, really. Uh, it was adapted by... Scott Alexander and Larry Karazowski, who uh, wrote um, our very, very first movie that we did for the podcast, Ed Wood. And they really do a good job. I think that, you know, they've done a lot of bio pick movies and they kind of add a lot of realism to this folklore of this room. Really do a good job of bringing that all together. So those are our supernatural scary picks of the week The Skeleton Key and 1408. Some real creep fests. And again, get good picks if you don't want the uh, traditional, you know, really gore-fest, bloody-type movies, um, these are good uh, go-tos. Definitely. Unless you hate horror movies altogether, in which case <laughs> you're probably not even listening to this episode.
2: Who knows? I hope, even if you're not, you know, like like I always say, you know, you can listen to... Uh, An episode that we do on a movie that you'll never see, but you know what? You can talk about it to other people when they're like, have you seen The Ring? be like, why, yes, I actually know the entire history behind The Ring.
1: Good call. Good call. (laughs) Lindsay, I'm very, very curious if this will be a scary Bill Murray story. I never know what to expect, but I'm wondering what you have in store for us for this uh, episode. Here's your Murray moment. (laughs) Chicks dig me
0: because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do,
1: it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know?
0: She didn't even mm, chill. I'm is so stumptuous. Is this hand shucked?
1: The flowing robes, the grace, all. Striking. <sighs> that was fun.
2: You're always setting me up. I guess it's a little scary for Naomi Watts in this one. For those of you who haven't seen St. Vincent, you're missing out. The more time that passes, this movie keeps solidifying as one of my favorites of dear old Billy. And although this isn't my first endeavor into talking about the movie, see episode 54 of our babysitter special, but this time around, we're going to discuss another co-star of the film, of course, The Ring's Naomi Watts, in this movie. Naomi plays Daka, the Russian prostitute and semi-girlfriend of Bill's character, Vincent. But before they both starred in this Todd Melfi film, they actually met at a party and hit it off quite well, so much so that they exchanged numbers, and even allegedly Bill's prank called Naomi once or twice. A guy after my own heart with the prank calling. Again, see another episode, episode 87, for more on that. Yet still, when it came to Naomi working with Bill, she was pins and needles nervous thinking about it mainly because she was going to be working with he and another highly skilled and praised comedian Melissa McCarthy. "'I was nervous going into St. Vincent because I hadn't really done anything comedically that Bill would have connected with,' Naomi once told late-night talk show host Jimmy Kimmel. She just kept thinking to herself, oh god, how am I going to prove myself here? And the answer? She stayed in character nearly the entire time. She said she never wanted to give Bill a chance to see any of her fear. The anticipation of it was terrifying, she told CBS this morning. It was so scary, and he's so good at what he does, and I heard that he doesn't suffer fools, like fall in love with everyone right away. For the movie, Naomi had to perfect a Russian accent, and the Australian actor sure can nail an American accent, but I'm no expert. I think her Russian accent is pretty awesome as well. And for this movie, she had to have it down cold, which is extremely important when you're working with two comedians who are improvisational masters. I had to learn the accent well enough to the point that I had to learn how to go anywhere. In other words, she not only had to learn her lines, but she had to be Daka at all times and be able to flip any switch of dialogue at the ready. Okay, staying in character during the entire shoot could be done, no big. She thought, if they reject me, especially Bill, since most of her scenes are with him, then he'd be rejecting Daka, her character, not herself. As if the anticipation weren't pressure enough, Bill and Naomi's first scene they film together is a sex scene. It's not horribly graphic or anything, but you know, it is a simulated sex scene. And it is common practice during some films to just get the sex scene over with the awkwardness of filming that, just get it out of the way first. But here's Naomi, already nervous and trying to mask it while on top of Bill for this scene together. I pretty much had to straddle him right away, Naomi told writer Gavin Edwards, and she went in all the way. The accent, the dedication, forgoing any sense of fear that she had over the situation, and definitely the idea that, eek, maybe she and Bill wouldn't even get along in a professional atmosphere. But as any professional actor would, Naomi did what was scripted, enacting the awkward scene with Bill while having this prosthetically enhanced pregnant belly attached to her too. And upon completing the scene, Melfi's got it in the can. Bill says to Naomi, so, uh, are you seeing anybody? and with that, the tension was broken between the two. I could go into a lot more of their palling around behind the scenes of this movie and becoming better friends, but I think I should hang on to that for future Murray moments. For now, go watch St. Vincent, especially if you've never seen it, and think of the story when you do. It's kind of horrific, filming a sex scene. Yeah. Not because it's Bill Murray, but just filming a sex scene.
1: Yeah, it would be very uncomfortable and awkward. Yeah. Uh, St. Vincent is really a good movie. It's um one of the few like adult oriented comedies that would just not come out in theaters nowadays and uh, I know it's not that old but um really a great cast and again like like an adult comedy
2: I can't say enough good things about this movie so watch it if you can
1: I'm have to go back and rewatch it well thank you for that Murray moment of course so before we wrap things up here, just a few uh final things with The Ring that I think are kind of creepy. And this is something I don't know if this would like really work now, though I wish studios would do more of this kind of stuff like uh I know there's a lot of easter egg stuff that you can find on DVDs and Blu-rays with the movie. yeah But for The Ring when it came out, a easter egg that was like pretty creepy was uh you could um access the uh, uh in the menu like it was like if you push down and then enter it would uh it would actually go to a sub menu and it would play the cursed film from The Ring yeah, in its entirety, man. and it would like you would lose. Uh, it would disable your remote so you couldn't stop it or fast forward or anything until it was over. And then after you finally, it went back to the sub menu and you hit enter. Uh, you would hear the sound of a phone ringing twice which is uh, pretty creepy, you know? I'm and it's something chills too- right
2: now. And it's
1: something too that it wasn't like real obvious. So it's like you could easily like accidentally turn it on and be like, yeah. what the hell's going on? And then your remote's not working unless you actually like shut your DVD player off. And uh, with the VHS too, they did something where it was like, before it went to the credits, you know, trailers before the movie fe- main feature, it would play the film and then it would also do, uh, it would play the short cursed film and then it would also hear a phone ring you know, on the audio, just a really, uh, inventive and creepy way to, um, freak people out, especially if you, uh, were by yourself and you are just, you know, kind yes. of fumbling around with the remote and like, whoa, what's happening.
2: <laughs> that would be a moment that I would jump up and like, just slam yeah, just the like, DVD player off. Like, okay, power. I don't know what just so, happened, like, but get it off. <laughs> shut off my surge protector. Yeah. Um, I did hear that as a, as a marketing tool for this movie. I didn't find a first hand account, but not screeners for the movie, but that tapes, unmarked tapes of just the film, the cursed film were kind of put out and distributed Um, which is a pretty scary thing to do when you're promoting a movie. But again, this is back when you could get away with great marketing techniques like this. Like The Blair Witch Project probably has one of the best of making people feel like this is a real thing. So kind of along the same lines of putting that tape out, out there and getting people creeped out.
1: So I guess that's it. Um, Thank you again, listeners, for sticking around for this uh, 20th anniversary episode of The Ring. This was a really uh, fun movie to do for this episode. Uh, This is the uh, first part of our two-part installment of Scary Movies for the Halloween season.
2: So happy 20th anniversary to The Ring, which we're just like a week and a half shy of its actual 20th anniversary. It came out on the 18th of October. Wow, I know, wild. I can't wait to dive into Poltergeist. That'll be up next, guys.
1: Yeah, October uh, 25th, we'll release our episode, the 40th anniversary of Poltergeist. So we got two anniversary movies in here for uh, the price of one, (laughs) and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm just... Trying to squeeze in as many scary movies as I can for October. Uh, It's always my favorite time to do that. Sometimes I go months. I hate to say it because we have so many movies that we're doing for this podcast. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sometimes I don't get to watch as many horror movies, but I just, I force myself October. I'm like, it doesn't, every day, just trying to enjoy it, really get into the season. So... Thank you for listening. Uh, If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, You can also find us on YouTube. We have our own channel. Please subscribe. Uh, has all of our old episodes on there some people like uh, youtube it's my go-to sometimes mm-hmm. if you're just listening you know there's not video on there but there are some videos the, uh, remember when we
2: we we used to do that's some parody true, yeah, videos a
1: couple parody videos but but i just mean you know if you want sometimes if you just want to listen to an episode it's easy to dial it up on youtube mm-hmm. instead of going to spotify or you know one of the other um platforms but we are on those platforms you can we stream are. us on those platforms but
2: i uh, really go back and find those
1: parody videos because yes. they're they're pretty there's some good ones we need to get yeah. back into doing that i agree we do yeah and also you can find all of our old episodes on our website at don't push pause podcast.com until next time i'm justin johnson
2: and i'm lindsey reaper
1: thanks so much for listening
2: thanks guys